welcome to First Incision, the podcast about preparing for the General Surgery Fellowship exam. I'm your host, Amanda Nikolic. Welcome to this special guest episode of First Incision. Today, we are lucky enough to have Dr. Alex Craven on the podcast. I invited him to be a guest on the podcast because he has a great way of breaking things down and explaining really practical ways to prepare. He was actually one of the people who helped me prep for my interview to get onto the program, and he was super helpful then, so I'm sure we won't be disappointed with the way that he explained things and helps us prepare for the fellowship exam. This first episode is going to be based around his general tips and tricks for preparing and sitting the fellowship exam as well as touching a little bit on what to expect and tips for the written part of the fellowship exam itself. We will have a second episode going into the clinical viva aspect of the exam, so keep an eye out for that one. Thank you so much for coming on the program today. Before we get started, I thought I might ask you to tell us a little bit about yourself. Thank you. It is a pleasure to be here. Um, flattered to be asked and humbled to be involved. Uh, my name's Alex Craven. I am uh, currently in my first year of Upper GI and SCOSA Fellowship training at the Royal North Shore in Sydney. Uh, before that, I did a postgraduate fellowship in uh, bariatric surgery at the Austin Hospital, uh, and I sat and passed the exam in the first half of 2018, so a couple of years ago now, uh, and finished general surgery training, training in that year. Um, I don't know. I'm married, two kids, 1613. That keeps me busy enough. Um, I think the main thing I would say about myself in regards to the exam is I sat this exam two years ago, uh, and this is an exam that changes every single year although it seems to evolve slowly over time. So what I have to say may still be relevant, but also some of what I say may be completely irrelevant to candidates. And in particular, I sat an analog exam. I sat a handwritten written exam and there was really no technology other than a PowerPoint slide uh, in front of me during the exam. And I think that if nothing else has changed. And so when I talk about, I guess, the feel and the environment of the examination, that's probably different now. Um, and also I only sat one exam. It was my exam. It was unique to me and special to me. And I think that one of the things I found when I was studying for the exam, getting advice about the exam is that often advice seemed very contradictory and many people who I respected had very differing opinions about what is the right way to approach the exam, approach studying for it, approach answering questions. And I think it's worth remembering that the majority of people you speak to, unless they are examiners, sat one exam and that was their unique exam and that the advice they are giving you with the best intentions was specific to that exam they sat and it may not be uh, relevant to your exam. So I guess it's up to you to choose how much of what I have to say is valuable to you and how much is not, um, and also how much of what others say is, is valuable and not, and feel free to pick what you want and discard the rest. And I guess that's a good thing about, or a good reason to ask lots of people so that you can get everybody's perspective and sort of put together your own approach to your exam. 
Yeah, I agree completely. And I think a big part of that is also choosing people who are a bit different from you, who think about things different from you. I think we tend to migrate as people, as registrars, as surgeons, towards people that kind of have the same interests as us and feel the same way, talk the same way, dress the same way as us. And the most valuable insights you'll get in preparing for this exam and in life will be from people who come from very different backgrounds, who have different interests and different perspectives. And I think look out for those. Look out for people that challenge your way of thinking about topics because they come at it from a different angle because there is huge value in that. If nothing else, if you can figure out why two sensible people that disagree on something, then you're really getting to the crux of the problem. Uh, and that's a valuable thing to have, particularly those controversial topics that come up again and again and again. Uh, if you can figure out why two very sensible, rational, well-read people have strong opposing opinions, uh, then you can answer that question. Uh, so that would I would agree heartily with exploring widely in searching for advice. Fantastic. So moving on to why I asked you onto the program, in general, what tips or advice would you have for trainees about the fellowship exam? There is a lot I could offer and say, and, and it, it is all mainly opinion. But when I look to the majority of candidates that sat with me and that I have met who have sat since, I don't think anyone is... Uh, not taking the exam seriously enough. I don't think anyone is not putting enough effort in. Uh, what I think a lot of us end up doing is misguiding our efforts and working very hard rather than working very smart. One of the things that happens, it's at a massive anticlimax at the end of the exam, if you get through, is that someone comes out and says, the college has found you satisfactory. <laughs> They don't find you good. They don't find you, they don't even find you, yeah, they're just, you're just satisfactory. And so I think we're all high achievers and we want to be something more than that, but all we're looking for here is satisfactory. And that is the ceiling of your efforts. Just have the good enough answer. It doesn't have to be the perfect answer. You'll always want the perfect answer. You'll never find it. But have a good enough answer for everything on the curriculum and you're there. And in your study groups, stop worrying about who's got the best answer and make sure everyone's got a good enough answer. It is a very passable exam. Uh, that is something that you will hear from all sorts of people who have sat it and who haven't. Uh, but look around you, think of all the consultants you work with, think about the ones who are a bit scattered, who don't explain things particularly well, who don't seem to be at all up to date with what's current in surgery. Think about the ones that are just plain a bit weird, don't know how to uh, communicate properly. Think about the ones that are far more interested in their extracurricular pursuits than they are about anything in the operating theatre. Think of all of those consultants. They all got through, every single one. And so, so can you, simple as that. With that in mind, I would like to suggest that always remember this is not a pass versus fail exam. This is an exam that you pass now or you pass next time. Every year, something like 70% of people get through on their first attempt. 
and 90% get through within their first two attempts. And if you look at first three attempts, it's well over 95%. You know, really, unless you consider yourself to be in the bottom 3% of all potential candidates, then you're going to get through. And with that in mind, there's two questions to ask yourself. How do you make sure you pass now? Uh, Why is it that a lot of people have to sit this a second time and when you ask them about that, they tell you how much more ready they were for the exam, how much better they knew the exam, how much easier it seemed and how unprepared they felt they were the first time. You know, and, and so try and figure out what is it about that second time around that makes those people float through the exam so easily who are the so-called failures that, that didn't do well the first time around. And I think the two things that they've done between those two exams to get through the second time is that their study becomes goal-directed rather than I'm going to read through this curriculum and then when I finish reading through this curriculum, I'm going to do some questions. I'm going to, there's none of that. When they attack that curriculum, they are deliberately looking for their weaknesses. They are deliberately trying to figure out what can I achieve from reading about this. They're not just let me read up about bowel cancer, they're reading about bowel cancer with the goal-directed intention of, I am going to read about bowel cancer so that I can explain how I work up a bowel cancer patient. I am going to read up about right hemicolectomy so that I can describe the key steps and the pitfalls and move on. And so their study becomes goal-directed. And I think that you don't need to sit the exam twice to be goal-directed and focused in the way you approach the content. I say this because there is no bottom to the curriculum. It is a bottomless pit. You can spend your whole life in that, that syllabus, curriculum, whatever you want to call it. You, there is no, you know, everyone says, what is examinable? Everything in surgery is potentially examinable. You can spend your whole life wading through it all. So, I think you need a goal-directed approach to that to stop you from wasting your time. And the other thing I think they do is that they deliberately practice. So they don't just practice exam questions to get some feedback on how to improve next time, but they practice exam questions in a deliberate way to change their performance in specific ways. What do I mean by that? They practice their exam questioning to do things like answer the question that's asked rather than the one that you assume. So when they sit down and practice their exam questions, you can actually do this yourself, have a practice session where all you do is focus on answering the question that's asked. So if I put you on the spot, Amanda, and I say to you, where do you find the right ureter at right hemicolectomy? The anatomical landmarks for the right ureter at right hemicolectomy are the... Good. So let's stop and start again. Right, right, right. So I didn't ask you what the anatomical landmarks are. <laughs> I asked you, where do you personally find the right ureter at right hemicolectomy? And so your answer could probably start with something along the lines of, at right hemicolectomy, I find the right ureter during lateral to medial uh, mobilization of the right hemicolon by staying anterior to the retroperitoneum, you know, whatever you want to do that. But that's a very different way to answer the question. Now, if I then ask you, uh, 
how can the right ureter be damaged at right hemicolectomy? I don't want to know the anatomical landmarks about that. And, I, and, and that's a very simple, straightforward example. But you can have practice sessions with the people in your study group to get rid of that behaviour of trying to be smarter than the examiner, you know, trying to answer what you think displays your knowledge best versus what the examiner has asked. And I think that a lot of candidates that have struggled and candidates who have had freak out moments, and I count myself amongst them in the exam, this is a key problem. So, and this is only one. And another way um, I think you can practice is, is with if you're given a quandary, the, the adage of uh, any dilemma in surgery should be answered with it depends, have a practice session where you answer ev with everything with it depends. And then the next question, of course, is it depends on what? So if I ask you, you unexpectedly find a common bile duct stone at laparoscopic cholecystectomy, what will you do? It depends. It depends on what? Okay, so now, and, and, and you can depend on whatever you want. And, but, but that, you know, have a think about that because if you then ask yourself, it depends on what, then, you know, it depends on does the patient have symptoms of cholangitis? Is the, have they got evidence of biliary obstruction? <laughs> Where am I? Have they, have they had a rheumoid gastric bypass? Is this the only chance for that stone to come out? You know, the, the, it depends on a lot of things. And, and for any quandary, you can, you can do that. And, and it becomes a bit of a fun exercise. But you... By, by deliberately practicing these things and changing your performance in specific ways, you will create useful, effective habits in regards to question answering that will be much harder to develop if you're just doing this ad hoc asking questions, answering questions. Oh, and, and most of the feedback will be content-based, right? You know, you, you sit down with a boss and, and you say, oh, what did you think of my answer to that? Well, look, I don't think you adequately explained X, Y, or Z. Most of the feedback, and if you can find someone that will give you good technique feedback, latch onto them and latch onto them early, develop your habits early, rather than trying to change the way you answer questions after you've been through the syllabus and already thought about this for three months. Set you set your habits early. That's really practical advice about how to structure sessions and develop a different way of thinking about just the content because it is really hard to come up with ways, I guess, to do that in the study sessions. And we've struggled with, you know, how we should structure the study sessions and what sort of things we should do, question answers, you know, operative stuff. It's really hard to come up with that. So that's really handy advice, really. Yeah. Look, I think if I, yeah, if I could have my time again, I would have done these things. This is all fine for me to say. I didn't do any of this stuff. It's all stuff I've thought of, uh, kind of mid to late exam preparation. The other thing I think while we're on the topic of of this being a passable exam, that you either pass now or pass later, the next question you need to ask yourself is, why might I need to sit this later on? Why might I need to do this again? And I've had the privilege and pleasure to meet with a number of uh, surgeons who sat the exam more than once and talked to them about these things. And 
what became very clear to me is it's our weak links that delay our transit through this exam, not uh, not not our lack of areas of expertise. So no one has failed this exam because they couldn't quote the latest research. No one has failed this exam because they weren't, they didn't know enough about the RET proto-oncogene. People have had to reset this exam because they hadn't adequately covered areas uh, that were really quite basic and quite simple. And so when you look at that curriculum for the first time, when you're structuring this, sit down with your study group as well and be very honest with yourselves about where your weak spots are. I loved studying everything about the thyroid because I already kind of knew it. I was just finishing up on an upper GI endocrine term and I, oh man, the, the stuff I learnt about MEN syndrome and I could quote specific alleles, it was ridiculous, of absolutely no help or use. But you get into this trap where you think, hey, I'm doing good study here. I'm learning lots. And it is kind of interesting, particularly when you're trying to procrastinate from dealing with you know, gaps in your knowledge. Find those areas that you're less, less comfortable with. I had no idea about chemotherapy and breast cancer. And it took me a very long time to sit down and actually come to grips with that because everyone else seemed to know about it. And so it was embarrassing to address that because I didn't want to show that I knew nothing about it. So go and find those. Be very honest with yourselves and each other and find those areas where you're like, I don't really understand this. I don't get this. And deal with that first. Don't go through the curriculum in a stepwise, because if you go through it in a stepwise manner, you will devote a week to each section and the majority of that week will be refreshing yourself on the stuff that you know and understand because that's just more pleasant study to do. And you and, and that's that's not time well spent. Getting Knowing something that you already understand better has never helped a surgical candidate. Um, dealing with the areas they don't know well will. One other thing that I think causes people to seriously this exam is choking. That is... And now I mean that in a sporting sense, the the choking I would define as performance that is severely below. Let me start that again. Choking I would define as performance that is well below that demonstrated previously by an athlete or an exam candidate. That is when you know that answer, but you just can't get it to the tip of your tongue or explain it properly and then suddenly you're in this horrible place where the next three simple questions just it's tumbleweeds drifting by and you know you're in trouble and most exam candidates have have had this feeling where you're just thinking oh my gosh the train is off the tracks you know I, I am a grown man with a wife and kids and I am just floundering like a scared child here. And and that is a horrible place to be and it ruins people's exams. And if you talk 
again, a significant number of people who have had to reset this dam have had to do it because of choke events. It's not that they're any worse than any other candidate. It's not that they don't know enough. It's not that they haven't tried enough. It's not that they're not eloquent enough. It's just that they're in that horrible place. And this happens to professional world-class Olympic athletes. This is not something to be embarrassed about. It is actually a sign that you are performing at your peak if you can choke. You have to be really good at something to choke at it. If you're not good at it, you can't choke, right? So you. the good news is that in sports, the military – and life, people have looked at this and know how to stop it from happening. And the answer is generally simulation. If you put yourself in an environment that is of a similar of similar arousal or stress to the event and imagine it happening and then practice in that sort of environment, it actually decreases your chances of you choking. This is why the military scream at their officers during basic training. This is why athletes who are practicing at the top level aren't just shooting free throws from, you know, in a quiet stadium. They're doing it with people jumping in their face and yelling at them and carrying on. So get into simulation early. Create an environment that is as much like the exam as you can. Choose scary people to be involved in your simulations, people that that you are either frightened of or either you respect and therefore are frightened of disappointing, involve them in your simulations um, and do it often. And, and the choke events just won't happen. As simple as that. So those are my in general advice um, for, for this exam. One thing that we're all aware of, and, and it's part of choking and it's, and it's um, uh, part of performance uh, in the exam is there's this really useful concept of the Yerkes-Dodson curve, and that's the one where performance is on the y-axis, stress is on the x-axis, and it looks like an, an upside-down U. Um, and essentially the idea being that at very low levels of stress or arousal, we don't do a very good job at stuff. When we're bored, we're not very good at doing what we're doing. And also when we are at very high levels of arousal, such as in the middle of a surgical exam, in a grand final, in war, we make silly decisions or we perform well below our optimum. And you can really use this. And I think that a lot of us think about it in terms of in the exam room, how do I keep myself out of that danger zone of the highly stressed area where I'm likely to underperform? And there are lots of techniques for that and you need to have some. I've talked about simulation so that it doesn't feel so weird. But yeah, I had songs that I would listen to while sitting around and waiting. I had things I would run through in my head that had nothing to do with the exam, just, just to bring me out of that space. And lots of people have similar techniques. You can find them all over the internet. For the interview, I did power posing to make myself feel confident and calm. <laughs> As a perfect example, it's, it's, yeah, you, and I think if I had my time again, I would have something to do in the exam room to bring me out of that space. I don't know what that would be, but I wonder if there would be something you could do, or something you could have, a technique for when you're in the thick of it, you've got an examiner on both sides of you, and the wheels are coming off the tracks, what would that look like? What would that thing that you 
to be, I'll give an example. I always have as my shit stitch, my bleeding stitch is always a 5-0 proline. And the reason it's a 5-0 is because I yell out 5-0-5-0. And if anyone has seen The Wire, they'll know that that's <laughs> a silly phrase. And as soon as I do that, someone in the room who's seen The Wire kind of groans like, oh, you're an idiot. And that brings me out of that shit, there's blood all over the floor moment. I don't want to suggest this is routine for me, but but I do that and I deliberately have done this. And, I, and in any operation where I'm a bit nervous, a bit worried, and things get a bit weird, I'll say, have we got a 5-0-5-0? And it's got nothing to do with the stitch. It's got everything to do with getting Alex out of his worry zone and performing better again. Flipping a mental switch for you. Exactly. And so I wonder what I would have if I had my time again to get me out of that derailment. So maybe that's something that you could, and people should look at doing, you know, is there a way to get you out of that headspace when you know things are going badly? But also what I was going to say about that is avoid the underperformance during your preparation because it's boring when you're just reading through swathes of this stuff. And I think the answer to that to me was making it question-based and practice-based. And I think until I started practicing questions, which I did sort of three months before the exam. I still, until I did that, I think my study performance was really poor. My knowledge retention was really poor. My um, grasp of what was and was not important and my focus was really poor. And I think that had I started with with problem-based, goal-directed learning from the start, I think I would have found my study more stimulating and therefore been better at it. And those questions, are they like those previous exam questions that have been photocopied and circulated everywhere? Is that what you mean? Or just getting other people to ask questions? Both. I think one really good thing to do with that bank of past past questions, because they won't repeat them. Everyone says, oh, it's repeated. That's on the previous exam. Well, no, they don't. They they twist it in some weird way so that if you regurgitate the previous answer, you'll muck it up. But you look at that question and just ask yourself, how could this be asked in five different ways? I promise you any question on the exam, there are five different ways to ask that question. You know, the question about the anatomy of the liver with reference to its um, vascular supply and um, anatomical abnormalities thereof. We've all written this question like five times because it's kind of the easy one and you, you feel good about writing it and, and it, will, it will never come up the same again. So questions you could ask about that would be the drainage of the liver, or, you know, you could ask the same question with focus on the biliary tree. You could ask the same question or the segments or something else. You know, look at that question. The same with, you know, the thyroid nodule question. Just change the characteristics of the patient. They're asking you about a three-centimeter nodule in the right thyroid. Well, okay, fine. What if it's a five-centimeter? What if it's a three-centimeter? What if the question is how you take it out rather than how you work it up? What if the question is about the thyrotoxic patient rather than the benign nodule. Explore those questions and then suddenly you have a question bank that is much, much larger and actually more useful because in exploring those questions further, you will be more likely to adapt to whatever question happens on the day. 
So that does kind of take us into the next session where I wanted to talk to you about the different components of the exam because I feel like having an idea about the way they're going to ask us questions will help us make up ways to approach studying for the exam. So I was hoping you could break down each of the sections for us and then as well as telling us sort of what it is and what to expect, um, any tips that you have for each of the sections. And I wanted to kick off with the written exam in general and the spots. So the written exam, I, I got to warn you that I think like most candidates, there there is a lot of fuzziness in there, probably because of that high stress, high arousal scenario that we talk about. I mostly remember being in a really quite terrible hotel and then a fantastic party long before we got our results. Like we all just went and had a great time just to be out of the exam. They're my fondest memories of the exam. I remember all of that very well. Um, the exam in itself is a bit of a blur, but the written is a very collegiate, friendly place to be. It's quite nice. You're all in the same venue. The experience of the actual exam is you all show up. You see a whole lot of people you haven't seen since you know the uh, exam preparation course. You're all in the same boat. You're all managing your emotional overlay in various ways, and and it's quite lovely and friendly and nice and um not only that but there'll be people there from other specialties as well so you'll see you know people that you haven't seen for ages you've worked with at other hospitals oh hey you're sitting your exam all this stuff, stuff and it's just lovely and then suddenly you're all sitting there realizing that the exam's about to start and there's a lot of money time and pride on the line <laughs> when, and then and then it is is a classic exam experience that you're you're in a two foot by two foot desk that is well I'm sure exactly a meter and a half away from your next candidate on each side and in front and in back uh, you've got a few writing implements a bottle of water and not much else with you uh, and there's a clock projected on the wall in front of you and then you sit there and you wait and you wait and then the exam booklets are handed out and you're terrified to touch it in case you get kicked out of the exam and then finally they let you start. Uh, and a couple of things happen that you don't expect. For me, one of them was I completely forgot what time we started exactly. I knew kind of roughly what time it was, so it was kind of a mystery for me for the whole exam exactly how much time I had left. Now, I knew I... I had the answer to within about 10, 15 minutes. Um, what I didn't realize at the time is I probably could have asked the invigilator and they would have just told me. But, but so that's probably something to pay attention to if, if you're an idiot like me. The other thing is that it is one of those classic too much to do in too little time exams where it's very easy to lose focus, uh, very easy to lose track of time and extremely easy to spend half of the exam answering perfectly that question you know so well and have practiced five times because there'll be half of the questions will will be like that. You will know them very well. I, I think all of us that, that sat you know, in that start of 2018 felt very strongly that was the trap, was time allocation. And that idea of strong link versus weak link 
you will get no extra points for making a good answer better. Like, yeah, you can get from the three to the four. Has that ever happened in real life? Probably not. But you certainly, the difference between a, a one or a two and a three is massive. And so I think that's, that's the trap. Uh, I don't know what you personally or, or anyone listening should do about that, but I think you should have a plan for it. Um, I had an amount of time allocated to every question and that was it. That was all the time I was going to spend on that question, full stop, no matter how well I knew it or didn't know it. Uh, but that means practicing two things. One, it means practicing a good enough answer for something you know well as opposed to an excellent answer for something you know well because a good enough answer is one that happens in about 10 to 12 minutes and stops as an encapsulated answer rather than stops because you're only halfway through what you needed to, to put in there. It also means having a framework for hopefully making a good enough answer for something that you don't really know much about. Um, and so again, those are the two things I would practice is, is having a framework that will get an answer to a trauma type question when you don't quite understand what to do about the specific traumatic scenario, a anatomical question where you really don't know the anatomy that well, a intraoperative decision-making question where you've got no freaking idea what to do about the case in hand, you know, those sorts of things, but also if you can beautifully explain the various options for the prophylaxis of breast cancer in a BRCA2 patient, not doing so, but explaining it pretty well in 12 minutes rather than explaining it really well in 20 and then screwing up the rest of your exam. So that's, that's the key to that one. It's time management is everything. And the key is just start practicing early. Those short answer questions, do they really just give you sort of an open-ended question or do they sort of direct you a little bit more? With mine, most of, it, most of these were actually in about two parts. The example is that, you know, the liver anatomy type question, there's a lesion in this segment, no, no, no. please explain the segmental supply of the liver and, you know, how this applies to it's blood supply for resection or, or whatever. So you've really got two things there. You've got show us the liver segments and that you know Cunard segments. And the second is what's the vascular supply to the liver? So again, answer the question that's asked. That's a trap, I think, because otherwise you just lost time. Oh, we didn't talk spots, did we? Sorry, that was the short answer. We forgot. On the same day, you do the spots. So you do one in the morning, one in the afternoon. You have lunch in between. You get a booklet put in front of you. And it's full of pictures, which are now quite good quality or were when I sat the exam. I know there's been a lot of talk about crap pictures. Ours were all very good quality. So kudos to the college on that. Uh, and each of them, almost all of them have three questions. Usually the first one is something along the lines of what is this? The second one and third one are usually a list what are the treatment options? What are the grades of this type of injury? What are the structures likely to be invaded? Whatever, usually a list of about four or five things. And most of those lists will be single words to short phrases. Because you only have four minutes on average per question. 
Yeah, yeah, and, and it's it's really quick and really short. And again, this is the of all the parts of the exam, this is the one where strong answers waste time. Good enough answers are the key. You know, what are the treatment options? Rectal prolapse. List the four procedures, move on. Done. When you start trying to explain yourself, explain your answer, just bleeding time. These spots are excellent preparation for the vivas as well because they force you to cut the crap. And they force you to get really good at saying the bare minimum to get your point across. And I would put it to you that if you actually answered most of the vivas as you would a spot just by an incoherent list of stuff, you'd probably pass. So it, it's, it's good practice for the rest. Um, things that helped me were use your inbuilt pattern recognition system. It is the best in the universe. The human eye brain access is fantastic at recognizing weird shit and filing it away for you for later on. Use that. What do I mean by use that? Just look at lots of spots, lots of stuff. Look at eight pictures of eosinophilic esophagitis down a gastroscope. Find all the weird stuff that you heard was on an exam once. Look at it. Do a spot about it. Move on. It's also great study for when you just can't be asked. Sitting down and going through spots is just probably... It feels like the least work because it is all just pattern recognition, which we're so good at automatically. Good bang for your buck. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Again, in your goal-directed study, if you look at a topic, ask yourself, how would I answer a spot question on this? If you can answer all the spot questions on this that you can think of, then that's all you need. Move on. Go and study something else. And that's where we're going to leave this interview for today. I'm so grateful for Alex spending his time with us, giving us these amazing, really practical hints and tips for preparing and sitting the exam. And I hope you guys have enjoyed learning from him as much as I have. Keep an eye out for the next episode with Alex, where we're going to uh, talk a little bit more about the written aspect of the exam. I'll talk to you next time. It's time to close up. Thanks for listening to First Incision. If you have any comments or feedback, send us a message at firstincisionpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram at First Incision. Happy studying!